And once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 3? If you're new with us, we welcome you. And just to let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And, uh, you know, I guess as a way of introduction to this chapter, if, if I was to ask you, you know, what would be, in your mind, one of the most important chapters of the New Testament? I think it's a good chance that several of you would pick John 3. And the reason I believe that is because in John chapter 3, Jesus answers the very important question as to how a person gets to heaven. Now, as evangelicals, that to us is the burning question that should, every heart should be wrestling with. That is the question in our minds, bar none, the most important thing a person can do in their life is to receive Christ, which means they have to be brought to a place where they're questioning, well, what does it take? What, what, is, what does it take to get to heaven? And we uh, have it here in John 3 from no, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who... Uh, answers the question that was posed to him by a, a very religious guy, a Jew named Nicodemus. Now listen, last week as we finished chapter 2, we said that the last three verses, verses 23 to 25, kind of served as a segue into chapter 3. As we studied those verses last week, we saw how that, for lack of a better term, Jesus had a lot of groupies, a lot of people that loved to follow him. In fact, it says at the end of John 2, that they followed him, many of these folks, because he did miracles. He did miracles. And yet they didn't want to really commit themselves to him. It was kind of interesting. Why is that? Because they were more they were thrill-seekers and not genuine disciples. Whereas in chapter 3, we're introduced to a man who allowed the miracles of Jesus to create a hunger in his heart to know this man more, uh, to want to understand his doctrines uh, deeper, and guys, this forms the basis for most of chapter 3, the first 21 verses. This is an incredible chapter. And the first 21 verses are devoted to uh, this message, which is going to be probably three parts. You must be born again. You must be born again. Now, I'd like to divide the first 21 verses of John 3 this way. The confused seeker, verses 1 to 12. The condescending Savior, verses 13 to 16. And then the condemned sinner, verses 17 to 21. So let's start with the confused seeker. Uh, let's look at the context. First of all, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And so right off the bat, the chapter begins with a man who wanted to speak with Jesus privately. So he comes to him by night. We're told his name was Nicodemus. And it also tells us Nicodemus was a ruler in Israel, which meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. And also it tells us that he was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were ultra-Orthodox members of Judaism who lived by the strictest possible religious standards. In fact, Jesus said they were so meticulous in keeping the law of God down to the smallest Detail, they even tithe to God from their herb gardens. Okay. Now, they numbered about 6,000 in Israel. 
And again, they were very zealous for the law. They committed to keeping God's law down to the smallest detail because in their minds, listen, this is how they earned salvation. This is how they got to heaven. At least that's what they believed. Now, even though the term Pharisee has become synonymous with hypocrisy uh, in our minds, not all the Pharisees were hypocrites. Some of them, like Nicodemus and Saul of Tarsus, were very sincere in their desire to obey God and live, li live lives of separation from all the pollution and corruption in the world around them. In fact, the word Pharisee means to separate. It means to separate. And so, you know, as we read this account, there's no reason to assume that Nicodemus had any ulterior motives when he came to Jesus. I know a lot of Pharisees came to him to kind of trick him, right? To kind of catch him with trick questions and things. I don't believe Nicodemus was of that sort at all. I believe uh, when he came to Jesus, he had no ulterior motives, no uh, mischief in his heart that he wanted to somehow catch Jesus, you know, and, and then turn him in it all. I don't believe that. I believe when he came to Christ, he came uh, with an absolutely sincere heart that wanted to know truth. And so verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nick came to Jesus by night. Yes, Nick at night. <laughs> he came at night probably, no doubt, to um, keep his interest in Jesus a secret. Again, um, most of the Pharisees hated Jesus. As we're going to see a small group were drawn to him. Nicodemus was one of those. So he can't, comes at night, uh, so it's not to arouse suspicion and kind of hide from the other Pharisees. Uh, I said that he was representing a small group of Pharisees. Uh, I don't know if it was small, probably was. I said that because uh, the fact that Nicodemus used the plural pronoun we, verse 2, uh, you know, he said, we know you are a teacher come from God, all right? And then Jesus responded uh, in the Greek, it comes through the plural you in verse 7. Um, this indicates that Nicodemus, once again, was representing a group of Pharisees uh, who are all open to Jesus and his message. The word signs there in verse 2, for no one can do these signs in the Greek as a word for miracles. I believe Nicodemus was saying that he and some of the other Pharisees had come to believe, based on the miracles that Jesus did, that he could, in fact, be the Messiah. And if that was true, that meant the kingdom was not far behind. Now, you have to understand something. The Jews were waiting for God's Messiah to come and establish God's kingdom on the earth. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we'll talk about that more today, but ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they fell, they were separated from God. Sin entered into the world and with it rebellion. Of course, as we talked about, I think it was last week, um, I can't remember it was Sunday morning or Wednesday night, so forgive me, but the first rebel in the universe was the devil who led a revolt, gathered uh, uh, a third of the angels, Revelation 12, 4 tells us, they followed Satan in a rebellion to overthrow God. Of course, what a joke. Okay, they couldn't overthrow God. Um, so God threw them to the earth. Not that they were limited to the earth. They will be eventually. Revelation 12, it talks about that. But um, 
the earth became the focal point, okay, of the devil's uh, rebellion. He exported his rebellion to the earth, and he got Adam and Eve to disobey God. And uh, when they fell, rebellion and sin entered into the world. And the Jew Jewish people believe that uh, this present age is an evil age of man's rebellion. And they are waiting, still waiting to this day. Back then, of course, they thought, well, they were right. Messiah, Jesus was Messiah. Uh, he didn't come to bring the kingdom, not outwardly at this first coming. He will when he comes again. But they were waiting for God's Messiah, who would establish a kingdom of righteousness, where the age of man's rebellion would come to an end, and the age now of God's righteousness on the earth would begin. That's what they were waiting for. That's what Nicodemus and his fellow Pharisees had begun to believe, that Jesus was doing the miracles God said Messiah would do. Read Isaiah 5, 6, 11, uh, those chapters, chapter 35, I believe, as well. Those all talk about the signs Messiah would do, heal the sick, cause the lame to walk, open the eyes of the blind. These were all things to look for that Messiah, when he came, he would do. And Nicodemus and his fellow Pharisees thought, this guy is doing all those things we think he's the Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, the kingdom's coming. So Nicodemus was authorized to go to Jesus. Ask him about it, okay? Ask him about it. And so he says, we believe that you are a teacher sent from God. You're the Messiah. That the kingdom is coming, isn't it? It's interesting that um, Jesus doesn't even respond to Nicodemus's praise or flattery but simply says to him, most assuredly, I say to you. Now, guys, I'm reading out of the New King James. Uh, if you've got a King James, it says, verily, verily. Anything Jesus said was important, obviously. If he said, I say unto you, that was important. If he said, King James, verily, I say to you, <laughs> that was really important. If he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, whoa, stop everything. Tune in, because what he's about to say is not just important, it's extremely important. And of course, what he's going to be talking to this Pharisee about is what's required to get into heaven. I think everyone in this room would say that's about as important a question and topic that we could ever discuss with unbelievers, right? So he wants Nicodemus to tune in and focus on what he's about to say. But of course, the Lord was going to speak in spiritual terms to a natural man, and he was going to confuse Nicodemus. And we'll see that. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Hey, we believe you're the Messiah, but the kingdom's coming, right? Hey, most assuredly, I say to you, if you're not born of the Spirit, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. I mean, that took Nicodemus back. If you're not born again, I should say. You're not going to see the kingdom of God. It, it, it really took Nicodemus back. In verse 4, he said to the Lord, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, look, I don't, I don't think Nicodemus was being flippant or, flippant or, uh, or sarcastic here. I, I believe he sincerely wanted to grasp what Jesus was saying, but he was genuinely confused. Again, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. And so at this point, Nicodemus was unsaved. Jesus is talking to him in spiritual terms, but he's thinking in literal, practical, even physical terms. 
Because that's where he's coming from. He's not a spiritual man at this point. So seeing that Nicodemus was confused, the Lord patiently tries to explain to him that he's talking about another kind of birth. Verse 5, So Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, guys, if I say to you that this statement by the Lord Jesus has generated controversy, it would be an understatement. It's generated a lot of controversy concerning this statement by Jesus as to what exactly he meant when he said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. There are three main interpretations for the term born of water. Let's look at that one first. Three main interpretations for the term born of water. There are those who interpret born of water to be a reference to water baptism, which they believe Jesus right here is teaching that water baptism is essential for salvation. Now, there's a lot of groups that believe this. We don't at Calvary. We practice baptism, as we're going to talk about in just a second. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that baptism Water baptism is essential for salvation. There are a lot of churches that do. I believe that flies against everything the New Testament teaches about salvation. And I know they have their verses, and I, I can give answers to the verses they have picked out to prove in their minds water baptism equals salvation. I don't believe the New Testament teaches that. Because all throughout the New Testament, we read that salvation, listen, is by faith alone in Christ alone. And not through any ceremony or ritual like water baptism. In the Old Testament, the Jews thought circumcision. That ritual saved them. And Paul destroys that in his writings in the New Testament. He said, don't you understand? Abraham was justified by faith. And we find out, as he talks about Romans, in Romans 17 years before he was commanded by God to be circumcised, God pronounced him just, Genesis 15, 6, for you know, uh, uh, he believed God; it was accounted to him for righteousness. Later on, I think in Genesis 17, God tells him to be circumcised. Paul says, "Look, don't you understand? You who believe that circumcision is essential for salvation, that Abraham was justified. We know 17 years before he was told to be circumcised. So, a lot of folks who believe water baptism is essential for salvation. And uh, I just believe the New Testament is clear that there's no ceremony, ritual." or any religious works, no matter how pious and well-intentioned they might be, that is going to purchase your salvation or help to purchase your salvation. It's all by faith. Paul said, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved. Grace means a gift through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, once a person receives Christ by faith, then we baptize them as a sign that they have now entered into the new covenant. Just like when a person gets married and the, the wedding ring goes on, that is a sign they have entered into the marriage covenant. The wedding ring does not make you married. I'm not wearing a wedding ring, but my wife will tell you I'm married. <laughs> and she doesn't have to, I'll tell you myself. The ring does not make you Married, it just testifies to the reality that you are married. It's a symbol. Water baptism doesn't save you, but it's a public declaration to all your friends and family, and we encourage you to invite them to come out to the baptisms because we want them to know that you are undergoing this 
ritual, which means nothing spiritually in the sense that it, it's efficacious. It doesn't affect anything spiritually, but it's a beautiful symbol, isn't it? And we want them to know as we dip you back in the water, your old life is dead and buried. We bring you up out of the water after five or six minutes. We want to hold you down real long to make sure that all those sins are drowned. Bring you back up signifies the resurrection of a new life, right? You're, you're a new creation then, a new person. No, it's only about four minutes. <laughs> See, water baptism is intended for those who, listen, have already been saved. We baptize you after you accept Christ. People say, oh, wait a minute, John the Baptist, he baptized before Christ came. John's baptism was not Christian baptism. He was, a, he, was a, he was the last Old Testament prophet, okay, who, who prepared people, the Jewish people, for the coming of Messiah by uh, dipping them in the Jordan River, which acted as a mikvah, a cleansing pool, which the Jews often bathed in before they went into the temple to worship God. It was just a way of, of saying, I want all the defilement of the world washed away as I go into God's presence. So John was, was preparing people's hearts to receive Messiah. But that was not New Testament, New Christian, uh, excuse me, New Covenant Christianity baptism. That was Old Testament stuff. So a lot of people think water baptism is what Jesus is referring to. Many others believe that when Jesus spoke of being born of water, that he was referring to the Word of God. And of course, they will point to and do point to Ephesians 5.26, where the Word of God is likened to water that cleanses. And then they couple it with 1 Peter 1.23, James 1.8, or 1.18, uh, which tells us that the new birth takes place through the Word of God. So you hear the gospel, the Word of God, you receive Christ, you're born again. And that is true, I just don't believe that's what Jesus had in mind in John 3. Of course, I'm not going to argue with James and Peter, they're right. We were, we were born again by the preaching of the Word which we received. All right? But that's not what Jesus... I believe is saying here, but let me say that that second interpretation that the uh, being born of water uh, signifies the word of God, that's the favorite interpretation among Protestants. Protestants. I've heard very, very intelligent, uh, learned uh, Christian pastors, professors adamantly, adamantly say that's the correct interpretation. Look, I'm not that smart. I just read my Bible like a child. And as you read the passage, let the passage speak for itself. Remember that verses 5 to 7 are a response by Jesus to Nicodemus's question in verse 4. And Nicodemus's question in verse 4 was a response to what Jesus said was necessary for a person to enter the kingdom of God, which he talked about in verse 3. Now, let me read those two verses again. So Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, at this point, Nicodemus really thinks that Jesus is saying that to be a member of the kingdom of God, a person needs to be born twice physically. No wonder he's confused. And in response to Nicodemus's question, Jesus says in verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what is he actually saying? Look, I believe that what's in view here are the two births, which are of course necessary for salvation, one physical 
the other spiritual. Look, when it comes to physical birth, we know that before a child is born, he or she lives in their mother's womb in what some have called the bag of waters. The amniotic fluid that surrounds the child protects the baby in in utero uh, until the day of the child's birth. When the day comes, the time comes, the bag of water breaks, and the baby is born. And I believe, guys, this is what Jesus uh, was talking about when he talked about being born of water. Physical birth. And I say that because Nicodemus thinks he's teaching you have to be born twice physically. He says, well, no, you've got to be born once physically. And he talks about born of water. And then he says, well, let me just say this. That interpretation that he's talking about physical birth is bolstered uh, by how Jesus qualifies verse 5 with verse 6 when he goes on to say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see how he's contrasting now the two births. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the physical. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That is the spiritual. And let's talk about that for a moment. What exactly does it mean to be born of the Spirit? Born of the Spirit. Well, it's a concept that traces its roots all the way back to the book of Genesis when God made the first man on the earth. When God made Adam, we read how that he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the very breath of God, and Adam became, or man became, a living soul. At one point, then, God takes from Adam's side something, a rib or some DNA, something like that, and uses it to make woman. So now man is on the earth, Mrs. Man, Mr. and Mrs. Man. I mean, mankind is the idea. God calls them both man. That's what I'm saying in Genesis. But uh, when God made man... He made them in his image as a threefold being. In his image as a threefold being. God is a threefold being. One God manifested in three separate and distinct persons, the tri-unity or trinity of God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He made man in his image, which in part means, I believe, he made man spirit, soul, and body. Spirit, soul, and body. The Bible tells us that God made us, made man, for fellowship. I mean, you think God needed us? I mean, he made us because he needed a helper. He wasn't able to do all the hard work he, he does run in the universe. No, he, he made us for the purpose of fellowship. Fellowship. And God and man originally came together. Spirit to spirit. John 4, Jesus said, God is spirit. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But God being spirit, man having a spirit, God and man came together spirit to spirit for the purpose of fellowship, and they had beautiful communion with one another. When God put Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden, he told them they could eat of all the trees of the garden. There might have been thousands of fruit-bearing trees. We don't know. I'm guessing. There's probably thousands. And God said, look, you can have all these for food. You can eat of any tree you want except one. You can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And yet when people read that and then see how that Adam and Eve did disobey God, did eat the fruit of that tree, and didn't die, they think, was God mistaken? What happened? God said they're going to die. They ate the fruit. They didn't die. What's going on? They did die. But not physically, they died spiritually. Their spirit died. And when that happened, their communion 
with God, their connection to God was broken. And since God is, the, God is the source of life, when they were disconnected from God, listen, they began to grow old and would eventually and did eventually die. We know that before the fall of man, there was no sickness or death in the world. Both sickness and death entered the world at the time of the fall through man's sin. Sin set in motion, among other things, entropy. Entropy. And in particular, the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything is moving from order to disorder. Things are wearing out, running down, rusting, decaying, going from integration to disintegration, basically from life to death. In fact, when God warned Adam and Eve that if they ate the forbidden fruit, they would surely die, the Hebrew uh, literally says, dying, you will surely die. In other words, they would no longer live forever as God originally intended when he created them. But now, as soon as a person is born, they grow up, and then they grow old, and then they die. But listen, as I just alluded to, Adam's sin didn't just bring death into his life. It impacted all of his descendants as well. As Paul stated very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, he said, Adam's sin caused all of his descendants to die. In Adam, all die. Every person born into this world, guys, is a descendant of Adam. And as such, they are subject not only to physical death, but listen, to spiritual eternal death as well, which the Bible calls the second death in the book of Revelation. Look, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, their fellowship with him was broken. As I said, their connection to him as the source of eternal life was severed. Because sin entered into their, uh, to their uh, hearts, their souls. And um, so, of course, God cannot have fellowship with sin. Uh, he said in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, your, your ears are not, My ears are not short. They cannot hear. Neither is my... Um, how did he put that? My ears are not short that you can't hear. Oh, my hands are not short that I cannot say. Neither are my ears heavy that I cannot hear. Your sins have separated you from me so that when you pray, I will not hear your prayers. I will not hear them favorably and answer your prayers. So sin separates. And when Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered into their hearts, their souls. They were now sinners. They were now fallen sinners. God, the connection with God was severed. And listen, in their present condition after the fall, they were cursed to spend eternity apart from God. Since again, God can have no fellowship with sin. In fact, through one of the Old Testament prophets, he said, I can't even look favorably upon sin. And that's why on the cross when Jesus was hanging there, at one point he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God cannot look upon sin. Christ became sin in that cross. It, the whole idea is beautiful fellowship in the garden was destroyed, was severed because of sin. And it wasn't just for Adam and Eve that they had to suffer that. They passed it down to all of their descendants. Everybody in this room, when we were born physically into this world, we were born descendants of Adam, fallen sinners, separated from God. This is our, this was where we were coming from. This is the reality that we had to live with. And as such, we were all subject not just to physical death, but also uh, spiritual, eternal death. In fact... The second death is a reference to an unbeliever, a child of Adam, being cast into the lake of fire or hell. Turn to Revelation 21. 
Let me read this to you. Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's hell, folks. Now listen, please. These are not a list of individual sins. They are categories of sinners. Please don't misunderstand. He's not saying that anyone who lies or is a coward or does anything immoral is going to hell. All, any Christian can fall into sin. But we are promised that we have passed from death to life and will never come into condemnation or hell. These are designations or classes, classifications of sinners. Unbelievers who live these lifestyles and did not repent, even though God gave them ample time to repent, they refused to. In their defiance, they went on in their immorality, their sorcery, their cowardice, their, the, uh, the murderers, and so on. This is who they were, not what they did. Yeah, they did it, but it was who they were. That's not who we are. We're child, children of God. We may fall into those sins at times. Hopefully not murder, but you know what I'm saying. But we can repent and receive Christ, and our fellowship with God will be restored. That's on a practical level. But those people who are living in sin by nature, God gives a wonderful promise in Revelation 2, verse 11. He said, To those who overcome, to those who overcome, they shall not be hurt by the second death. To those who overcome, they won't be cast into hell. You say, Whoa, how, what does that mean? I, I need to understand it. I don't want to go to hell. What does it mean to be an overcomer? John tells us in his first epistle, I think chapter 5, around verse 5, you become an overcomer when you receive Christ into your heart. When you believe in him as Son of God, Savior, died for your sins, rose again, when you believe that and receive him into your heart, now God classifies you as an overcomer because the only way you can overcome sin and death is through the blood of Christ. And so being born of the Spirit, guys, means to... And listen, I know for many of you in this room, this is about as basic as it gets. You've known this pretty much since the first week you were saved. Wonderful. But there's a lot of folks you're going to come in contact with who have never heard this in their lives. Like Nicodemus, they think they're going to get to heaven by being good. And the more religious they are, the more they ingratiate themselves with God and the better their chances of getting into heaven are. Do you realize that evangelical Christians make up a small percentage of the people in this world? What we take for granted, others have no, no clue of. Like, how do you really get to heaven? So please listen up. This is very important territory. That's why Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, right? Being born of the Spirit means to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, at which time you instantly undergo a new birth, where you are taken from the cursed family of Adam, the family upon which the wrath of God or the judgment of God abides. John 3.36 tells us that. And you are born into the family of God. It's instantaneous. The moment a person says, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and my Savior, a miracle takes place. It's instant. It's invisible. It's miraculous. Where you are taken from the family of Adam, 
and moved over into the family of God. The family of Adam has a curse hanging over it. It was pronounced in the Garden of Eden, right? And part of that curse not only involves physical struggles here on the earth right now, it involves eternal separation from God and uh, forever in hell. But you are taken from a cursed family and brought over into the family of God. Everything becomes different. You are now born of the Spirit, um, no longer a curse upon you leading to hell, but now the blessings of God abide on you as a child of God leading to heaven. And guys, listen, this is the only way for a person to escape hell and go to heaven. The only way, which is why Jesus emphasized it in verse 7 when he said, Do not marvel that I said to you, what? You must be born again. If you want to get into the kingdom of God. Now let me just stop and say this. We as evangelicals, you know, we love John 3. In fact, it contains some of the most well-known, best-loved verses in the Bible for us. And I'm thinking primarily about the first 16 verses, which, you know, basically revolve around two great must statements. We'll talk about this more in detail next time. But this section we love so much, especially the first 16 verses, revolve around two great must statements given by Jesus that climax in one great message of salvation. The must statements are found in verses 7 and verse, verse 14, where Jesus said, first of all, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, verse 7. And then as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, verse 14. And together, guys, they lead up to and climax in the single, listen, the single greatest message of love and hope ever given to mankind. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish in hell. That's where we were in Adam. But when you receive Christ, you're not in the family of Adam. Adam's family is a scary place. The Adam's okay. That's a scary place to be in. All right, you think your family's scary, all right? <laughs> but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life in the kingdom of God, right? We'll talk about this more, more uh, um, look at it more closely next time. But I just want to kind of wind this down by saying this. Just, we know as evangelicals, but let me just say it anyways. No one, no matter how religious they are or how morally good they think they might be, listen, nobody is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven based on what they do or what they think they are. I'm a good person. Uh, you know, I'm good with God. I, I, you know, I, you, you go to heaven when you die? Oh, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Why do you say that? I'm a good person. Who told you you were a good person? I mean, I, God didn't tell you you were a good person. So who told you that? Well, I mean, I look around and see a lot of, I watch the news and see all these evil people. I look at myself, I'm pretty good. Great. You're not the standard. Stand next to Jesus. How you look? He's the standard. Okay? How you come, how you, how you doing now? Good person? <laughs> no one is going to enter into heaven apart from believing in Jesus Christ and being born of the Spirit. Notice how definitively and emphatically Jesus spe speaks here uh, in the verses we've covered so far about this. 
Verse 3, he said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, he said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said you must be born again. That's important stuff, isn't it? Important stuff. Let me just close by saying this. When God first created everything, Genesis 1, right? Uh, after every day of creation, first the six days, seven day rested, of course. So after every first six days of creation, after every day he said, it is good. Lord saw it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, right? Uh, verse 31 of chapter 1, the Lord took a step back, looked at all of it and said, boy, it's all good, all good. Then sin entered the universe. And everything got corrupted that God had made of the original creation. The original creation went from very good to very bad. Very good to very bad. However, sin didn't only set in motion entropy, decay in nature. It corrupted all relationships God had made for fellowship. And I'm thinking the primary one was marriage. Remember when God made Adam before he was made, and God brought all the animals to Adam for him to name. And uh, he saw each one had a partner, but he didn't find any comparable to himself. And God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And that's when he made Eve, woman, and joined them together. God is a relational being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he wanted to share fellowship with his creation, mankind. But he also knew that we relate to God in the vertical axis, but then we relate to each other on the horizontal. And we need each other. I mean, marriage is the, the supreme expression of that on the physical level, uh, pl uh, the horizontal plane. But some people are called to be single. You still need people. You need your family. You've got a close circle of friends, no doubt. Um, we are relational beings because we were made in God's image. He's a relational being. We need each other. The worst thing you can do, and I've been told this by people who know this for a living, they, this is what they do for a living, the worst thing you can do to a prisoner is put him in solitary confinement. That is the worst thing you can do to a person. Cut them off from all human contact. It will literally make you crazy after a while. Because God made us with the need to, we need each other. We need the fellowship of the saints, right? But if you're a Christian. But when sin entered the human race, everything got corrupted, distorted. Um, man's relationship with God was broken. But our relationship with each other was also severely damaged. So that marriages today are suffering, families are suffering, friendships, all these interpersonal relationships that God has given us that we might thrive and know joy and everything, they've all been corrupted by sin, selfishness, pride, whatever it is. All of that has it's been corrupted. And this is what I believe has brought a lot of heartache into people's lives because they're not living rightly with others around them primarily. Husbands and wives are not having the fellowship and the communion that God has designed marriage to provide. Kids are cut off. I'm talking about adult kids or even sometimes 
uh, older teenagers are, are cut off from their parents because of their own sins and drug abuse and whatever else. Pride. All these human relationships are suffering, and because of it, all the joy, all the things that God wanted us to, to have as, as human beings connected to him and to one another, it's, it's not happening. When I talk about being born again is what it means to be saved, yes, but that, that affects eternity. Does it affect anything in time? Of course it does. It affects everything. Because Paul said when you receive Christ, old things pass away, behold, all things become new. You become a new creation. Uh, the kind of person that predated the fall. A person who, can, who has connection with God, communion through Christ. And your marriage can be all that God designed it to be before the fall, if you want it to be. You can still hang on to bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. That's up to you to let go of that. God will give you the grace to do it. You have to want it. And if you want that, in Christ, all things are possible. All things are possible. When a person is born disconnected from God, they never know they know they have life that's not living, though. It's not living. Because there's, there's no fullness there. Jesus said, I've come to you, have life, and have it more abundantly. It's a special spiritual life that, that comes into us when we receive Christ. And when you are connected to God once again through his son, Jesus Christ, yes, the life of God flows into you. You're going to die physically, probably, although the rapture seems pretty close, I think. So maybe in this room we won't taste death at all. All of a sudden one day we're having fellowship with each other and the trumpet sounds, the angel shouts, Jesus, come on up here. We're out of here, man. And we won't see death. We'll be transformed on the way up. But once you receive Christ, you're connected with God and all the life of God begins to flow. And what's produced is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace are the first three mentioned. Love, joy, peace. God's love is poured into your life. Romans 5.5. 5. Joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Unsaved people can have some happiness based on outward circumstances. They don't know joy. That's a, a, an attitude of the heart that is rooted, never changes, because it's rooted in Christ who never changes. I don't care what you're going through outwardly. I don't care what you right now what trial or what pain you're going through if you know christ in your heart you have a place reserved in heaven that's never going to change and then peace people are running all over the place trying to find some peace unbelievers try to find it through alcohol or pills or something else we get saved we the holy spirit moves inside of us and we know the peace of god it surpasses understanding it's an enigma to the people of this world how we can have peace in the midst of some of the most incredibly difficult circumstances it's all because of our relationship with the lord jesus so some to chew on for next time uh, in some ways we've just begun this incredible section but may god give us the grace to keep mining the depths of this incredible chapter that we extract from it well we'll never get all of it but some of it to 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 grow with and to share so let's pray father we thank you, Lord, for your incredible word. We thank you for this chapter. What an incredible chapter. Uh, 
Lord Jesus, where you presented your truth to this seeker who wanted to know you and have eternal life. Lord, we thank you. Father, we just ask you to keep, that you would keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.